Hebrews 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Good morning, church. I'll be honest, I'm a little, I'm a little worried that I'm destined to do the baptismal today. My name is Chris Kapiloff. Now, my guess is that when I introduce myself, you're in one of three groups of people. Either you're a visitor, and my introduction makes sense, or you know me, in which case you're wondering why would you introduce yourself, or you're part of a third group of people who think that my name is Greg Phelan. <clears throat> There's a surprising amount of you out there who think that I'm Greg. And listen, that's cool. If you're one of those people out there and you're like, damn, I didn't know that that was Chris. I thought that was Greg. Don't worry about it. I'm totally over it. And I love compliments. So all of the compliments I've gotten about my great preaching over the last six months, I just, I'm taking them in. I'm saying thank you. But just because we wear the you know, same glasses, just because we're both accomplished academically, um, <laughs> Uh, we, we, are, we are different. <laughs> so here we are, 
chest deep in the book of Hebrews. We've been studying it for several months now, and I think this is actually the 17th sermon on on uh, Hebrews, and and we've basically been talking about uh, how the author has has written this letter to a church in Rome, and the church in Rome is primarily made up of Jews who have converted to uh, be followers of Christ. And the book, um, who most people think was written by Paul, but we're not 100% sure, so if you hear me refer to uh, the author as Paul, what I really just mean is whoever the author is, it's most likely Paul. Um, But the book was written to encourage Jews to remind them that Jesus as the Messiah was a a far better system than the system that the Old Testament encapsulates. So we have these 16 themes that we've talked about so far. Um, Who can name them in order? I'm going to start calling on people and embarrassing you in just a moment. It's so weird that you guys would mistake me for a grumpy, cranky professor. So we've talked about all these themes. So we talked about Christ being a better messenger, a better human, a better Moses, a better Sabbath rest, a better petitioner, uh, that there are better things to come, a better hope for the future, a better promise, a better priest, a better king of peace, a better covenant, a better priestly work, sacrifice, a better response, a better resurrection. And last week we talked about a better way to endure. So I know that that was all on the tip of your tongue. Um, But today we're going to be wrapping a lot of these things into a conclusion uh, as the author starts to narrow down the focus of of this book uh, right at the end. And I have have two main points today. Uh, The first is I really want to concentrate on the chunk of verses from verses 18 to 22. Um, I want to talk about the mountain really in its entirety and what all of that means. And I also want to talk about the new Zion. But before I go on, let's pray. God, thank you that you are here and you are present with us. I would pray, God, that you would be uh, just on top of us today, God, in a way that we can feel, uh, in a way that we hear. Uh, God, help us to understand uh, what you have for us, God. Thank you, Jesus, so much for the power of your forgiveness. God, may it flow and wash over all of us. In your name I would pray. Amen. So, quite honestly, there's a lot of, I think, fairly confusing things uh, in this this passage. So I'm going to do my my best to unpack as much as I can today. Um, So I... I told you all about all those themes. I want to open up with a little bit of what we talked about last week in this chapter 12, uh, so we don't lose that um, in our perspective today. So this chapter starts with the author of Hebrews telling us that we need to endure life because it's hard, and and we make it harder on ourselves when we sin. Uh, And furthermore, that because God loves us, he's going to discipline us, which is never very much fun. And Paul uses... Uh, two examples here to encourage us to not reject God's grace and, um, and, to, and as a call to holiness. So the first example that he uses is he says that uh, striving for holiness um, 
is really important because it keeps us from having small troubles become big troubles, especially in this example he uses uh, in relation to others. And then the second thing that he says is holiness keeps us from making mistakes that we can't take back. And he gives the example of Esau. um, And if you don't know the story of Esau, that's totally okay. Uh, Esau had a younger brother, and Esau ends up giving his blessing. He sells his blessing for what was most likely a delicious bowl of stew. But then later he wants that blessing back, but it's gone. And, And the author says, even with tears, he can't get it back. So Paul is saying, be holy, because it'll keep you from being like Esau. It'll keep you from doing something that you really regret. So starting in verse 18, the author goes on to tell us about this mountain. And the author doesn't have to remind his audience of what's contained in in just these couple of sentences because he knows that they would know it so well that all he has to do is give the briefest reminder and the whole thing would come flooding back to them because as Jews, they would have known uh, the books of the law Probably many of them, they they would have memorized huge portions of it. And certainly they would know everything there is to know about Mount Sinai. But assuming that you guys are like me, um, you'll probably need a bit of a reminder. So so let let me do this. Uh, In the story, and if you want to turn to Exodus 19, I'm going to be reading there in just a moment. Um, God has come to rescue the descendants of Abraham. Uh, Abraham's family, three, four generations uh, after Abraham, moved to Egypt. And there they become this great nation of almost two million people. And God raises up Moses, and God tells Moses, go get my people out of Egypt, and you're going to bring them to Canaan. And there I'm going to make you into this great nation. And so Moses and the people of Israel end up leaving Egypt, and they get to Mount Sinai. And here's what it says when they get to Mount Sinai, uh, starting in Exodus chapter 19. It says, In the third month from the very day that the Israelites left the land of Egypt, they came to the Sinai wilderness. The Lord told Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Has anybody used the word consecrate this week in a non-Bible setting? Yeah, I wouldn't think so. I mean, I have like four or five times because I'm super smart. Glasses, Williams professor, the whole thing. Um, but when, when Moses, when God says, have the people consecrate themselves, what he means is get them ready to meet me. They need to prepare themselves. Going before God is not something that you just, you just do. You don't just like open the door and walk in and be like, ta-da, here I am, God, because God's Power, his holiness, his goodness is so great that you would be immediately destroyed if you were in his presence. There are several times when people go into his presence in the Old Testament. So one of them is Moses during this story. And God even says to Moses, like, you can't see me or you'll be destroyed. But he says to Moses, here's how much you can take. I'm going to put you in this cave, and you're going to look at me through this little crack. And I'm not even going to show you my face. I'm going to give you a look at my back. 
that is the amount that this amazing man and leader of the Old Testament was able to bear God's presence. And the Bible tells us that when he came out of that crack, his face glowed. It would have been super easy to pass him the Frisbee playing night ultimate Frisbee because you would have seen him anywhere on the field in the dark. The people were, were afraid of him because of what God's presence did to him. So God tells his people, consecrate yourselves today and tomorrow. It says they must wash their clothes and be prepared by the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Be careful you don't go up on the mountain or even touch its base. Anyone who touches the mountain must be put to death. On the third day, when morning came, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people in the camp shuddered. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain shook violently. The Lord directed Moses, go down and warn the people not to break through and see the Lord. Otherwise, many of them will die. So that's what it was like for the Israelites to come into the presence of God. They couldn't even be near the mountain. And God came down on it in such a way that it looked like a volcano. I can imagine the entire top of the mountain being ablaze. And where it says um, uh, it, it, was, it went up like the smoke out of a furnace, I'm imagining, you know, this, have any of you guys ever seen a giant bonfire? You can just see the air being sucked into the, the hot uh, coals and fire at the bottom and ejected out of the top. So in the New Testament, when it talks about, in our reading today, when it talks about it being a volcano, it probably looked like, a volcano because it was so hot. And the people had to be miles away from where God's presence was. So then in the next chapter, in chapter 20, God gives them, uh, we'll call it an extension of the covenant that God made with Abraham all those generations ago. And God gives the people the Ten Commandments. He says, God says, I'm going to bless you, and you are going to get the land of Canaan, and in return, you're going to do these ten things. And then God comes back, Moses comes back, and it says this, All the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sounds of the trumpet and the mountains surrounded by smoke. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. You speak to us, and we will listen, they said to Moses. But don't let God speak to us, or we will die. You speak to us, Moses, on God's behalf. But don't let God speak to us, or we will die. So when we read our verses today about, you know, when the author says, look, you don't come to God's presence like they did this is what he's talking about. And this becomes even more complex because the Bible is so wonderfully layered. Everybody who read verses 18 and 19 of this 12th chapter of Hebrews would have immediately connected three more things from the Old Testament with it. The first is they would have connected Moses as mediator. They would have connected Moses as mediator, meaning that the people didn't want to talk to God directly. The people couldn't talk to God directly. And so Moses talked to God and brought the message back to the people. 
And there are many examples of the people talking to Moses and Moses going to God with their message. So Moses as mediator would have been immediately understood by the readers. Also, the Old Covenant in its entirety. Now, the Old Covenant is expanded here through the Ten Commandments. But again, the original readers would have understood it to mean all the parts of the Old Testament, starting with Abraham um, and, and all the way through to its completion. And then lastly, the people definitely would have thought of Mount Sinai as the temple. See, the temple was not just the building. That, at this point, gets made uh, four or 500 years after this meeting. But the temple as being the place where people met God. If you wanted to meet God, the temple is the place that you would do that. And so as the people were reading verses 18 and 19, where people meet God would have been clearly understood. So here we are. Let me reread uh, a couple of these verses. So you're not going to meet God the way you did. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which says better things than the blood of Abel. And this is where it gets thick, folks. This is where it gets thick. And if you're out there thinking, like, what does Abel have to do with this? Don't worry about it, because that's what I thought the first time I read it. Um, So many things going on here. So there's this very easy contrast to see. Um, Just like Moses was the mediator, what the author is saying is Jesus is now a better mediator. You used to have to use Moses, but now you can see God through Jesus. You used to have to worry about fire and this very tense meeting where you couldn't hear God. But now there's myriads of angels. It's a festive gathering. It's an assembly of everybody. You're going to see God face to face. And then lastly, there was this temple. That's the way it used to be. And if you went into the temple you were probably going to die. If you were just Joe Smo off the street and you went into the temple, you couldn't go into the part of the temple where God actually lived. Once a year, one person was chosen to go into that part of the temple. And they literally wore bells on their ankle and had a rope tied to one foot. Because if God didn't approve of you being in there, it was just assumed that God would strike you dead you would fall to the ground, the bells would stop jingling, and nobody wanted to go in there after you, so they would pull you out with the rope. That's why they wore the bells and the rope, because going into that place was scary. And the author's saying, that's not it anymore. Because of Jesus, because of our new mediator, we get to approach God very, very differently than we used to. And note, the crux of this couple of verses here. And Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, because Jesus is the reason that we can now approach heaven. We can approach God without fear, without judgment, without condemnation from a holy God. We can approach God with a surety that we're going to be accepted 
as the verses here say, as firstborn sons. Uh, Let me unpack that sons comment here for a minute. It is not meant to be gender specific in any way. Uh, But as people would have understood this 2,000 years ago, sons were where the majority of a family's energy went. The firstborn son especially was the one who was going to carry on the family name. Uh, The firstborn would get all or the majority of um, his parents' attention, education, inheritance. And God says, you're all going to be like this. You are all worthy of all of my attention. You are all worthy of all of my inheritance. In the verses that we read last week, he said, you are all worthy of all of my discipline. So I ask you, church, do you ever feel rejected or misused, ill-treated, judged? Are you ever told that you don't measure up? If you do, I'm not surprised. For the most part, this is the nature of our world. And either we are the ones telling other people this, or we've received this message from others, most likely both. But in God's coming kingdom, we are all firstborn sons, approved by God. There will be no rejection, no misuse, no ill treatment. Let's talk about Cain for a moment. And Abel. So this verse ends with, and to the sprinkled blood which says better things than the blood of Abel. So in Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel are brothers, and Cain brings a sacrifice to God, and Abel brings a sacrifice to God, and God says that Abel's sacrifice is better. Cain's not happy about it. So he kills his brother one day out in the field, and God comes to him and says, Hey, Cain, where's Abel? Cain must have been quite a character because to get mouthy with God seems a bold move. But he says to God, look, God, basically, it's not my turn to keep track of him today, so I don't know where he is. And God says, Cain, the ground cries out to me. The blood of your brother cries out to me for justice. For recompense, you've murdered your brother, and now here's the judgment. He says, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opens its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. So this is what verse 24 is referencing. And basically it's saying that Cain killed his brother and he got what he deserved. And here's the thing. Would Jesus have died if we never sinned? He wouldn't have had to. So who killed Jesus? We did. We are the reason that Jesus died that gruesome, torturous death on the cross. Every one of us. But the author says, even though Abel's innocent blood cried for justice, Jesus' blood doesn't. The irony of this is that Jesus' unjust death 
becomes our justification in front of God. Because Jesus was unjustly killed, we are now made perfect before God. So we don't have to worry about Jesus' death affecting us negatively. Jesus doesn't want retribution for his death. God is not looking to judge us because of Jesus' death. It's exactly the opposite. Because of Jesus' death, we are no longer, we no longer need to be the victim of retribution. We no longer need to be judged for our part in causing Jesus' death. Because of that, we are not going to get what we deserve. So in closing today, uh, this chapter ends with an earthquake. And the author says that in the end, everything is going to be shaken. And everything that keeps us from God is going to fall down. I was Googling some images And if I were more computer savvy, they'd be up here on the screen right now, of some of the world's tallest towers. And I don't know if any of you read about how they're constructing these towers, but, I mean, there's towers that are several thousand feet tall. And, you know, they build them in earthquake zones, which totally makes sense, I suppose. Um, But these towers are built on these giant springs, like springs that only a tower could actually flex. And they, they say that they're earthquake proof. Uh, You know, I mean, I haven't bought a condo on the 140th floor of a tower in the, you know, rim of fire over in Asia. Uh, It just doesn't seem prudent to me. Um, But lots of people have, and they pay a lot of money for them. And their expectation is that if there's an earthquake or a tsunami or something like that, that they can be on the 140th floor of this tower and be totally okay. Um, So let's assume that that actually can happen for a moment. So imagine you're in your tower and there's this massive earthquake. And when it's over and the dust settles, you look around this city and there's nothing left except your tower because it is earthquake proof. This is the symbolism that the author is telling us. He says, God is going to shake the world and everything that keeps you from me is going to be destroyed. Only that which you need to live with me in heaven is going to survive this shaking. And so, church, I'd like to end today by saying that all of these things that keep us from God, you should put in one of two categories. Either A, you should work to get rid of it starting today because eventually it's going to be taken away from you anyways. So if it's going to be taken away anyways, right, and these things, it could be anything. It could be a romantic endeavor that you know is not appropriate. Um, It could be uh, being desirous of money in a way that is unhealthy. It could be uh, being desirous of being beautiful or having influence over others. Like all of these things that we put in God's place All of the things that we say, if I could just have that, my life would make sense. If anything goes in that bucket except God, those are the things that are going to get shaken away. And God says, one day, I'm going to take it away. So church, we might as well shed those things now. Or 
we're not going to shed them. Those things are going to be a place and may put in the place of God. And on the day when that shaking happens, instead of being in the tower that doesn't fall, we're going to be counted among the ruins of what does. We've been cleansed so that we can inherit a kingdom that can't be shaken. There's all sorts of tremors and shaking that we're going to have in this life. And maybe you're feeling that way today, that you're being shaken. But the assurance that we have in God is that if we belong to Jesus, everything perishable will be shaken away and will only be left with what cannot be. Let's pray, and then we'll move to our baptism. And after the baptism, I'm going to come back up to do the benediction. God, thank you for your perfect kingdom. Thank you, God, that because of Jesus, we can approach you in a way that so many others could not. Thank you, Jesus, for providing the bridge between us and God. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice so that we can be perfect. In your name I would pray. Amen.